First Peter chapter 1, we begin with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 13, and we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Certainly a rich section of scripture when it comes to pointing us to Christ, his shed blood, his atoning work. I want to call your attention to one aspect uh, of uh, our relationship to Christ today. It's found in verse 8, underscore these words, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We learn from this passage we've just read that searching out salvation was the practice of the Old Testament prophets. They not only prophesied, but they studied Scripture themselves, you might argue. They studied what other prophets before them had said. Searching out salvation 
it tells us. It was, and I dare say, it continues to be the desire of angels to look into these things. We're told in verse 12, and I said some while back that angels, even though they are not the beneficiaries of salvation, yet they see so much of the glory of God in salvation that they too have a desire to look into it, even though it doesn't directly involve them. Well, so should it be the practice of anyone who has any concern for the eternal destiny of his soul, his desire should be the same, to search out salvation. And there are several compelling reasons in this section of Scripture and beyond for searching out salvation. One, we should search it out so that we may be sure that we possess it. Very dangerous, you know, to take salvation lightly. One might argue that you're gambling with hellfire to be careless in the matter of salvation. It should be the believer's regular and earnest practice to search out salvation so he can understand it plainly and clearly, knowing what it is, knowing how it works, so that he can, in Peter's words in his second epistle, make his calling and election sure. Two, this practice of searching out salvation brings an added benefit. Not only can you read your title to heaven clearly, but you can draw power for your life right now from the gospel by searching it out. Paul writes to the Romans, and I've referred to this many, many times in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, that the gospel is the power of salvation. He doesn't say it was the power once upon a time in your life. No, it is the power. It is right now the power. It is continuing power unto salvation. Salvation, you see, is an ongoing experience. It should become richer. It should become fuller as you learn it and think on it and pray over it and live by it. And so there is a sense in which we here this morning are here in order to engage in this practice of searching out salvation. We're contemplating the price of it by remembering the blood of Christ. We're focused this morning in a divinely ordained way on the person who accomplished it, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we contemplate Christ in his humanity and are reminded of his shed blood, we are able, hopefully, to read with even greater assurance our titles to heaven very clearly. Three, we understand salvation. When we understand salvation, we will also learn to interpret the circumstances of life. We learn to interpret our trials and afflictions in the light of the cross. Christ set a pattern for us of suffering and glory. 
He displayed God's glory by bringing triumph out of tragedy. He is pleased to glorify himself in us by accomplishing the same thing in us, bringing triumph out of tragedy. When we contemplate the cross, therefore, we are able to, in the words of verse 6, greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, which could read manifold trials. Think about how amazing that is, that even in the midst of severe trials, you have the capacity to greatly rejoice. How is that? Well, certainly from a practical perspective, it comes about through searching out salvation and being focused on the cross. Now, one of the marks of a man who has gained a saving interest in Jesus Christ is that he becomes a stranger to this world. Makes for an interesting and a practical analysis to read through 1 Peter and look for the things that make the Christian strange. We appear strange to the world, chapter 4 and verse 4, because ye run not with them to the same excess of riot. We're not engaged with the world in their frivolity. We appear strange to the world because we are able in the midst of trials to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That makes us strange. And indeed, it is strange. We appear strange to the world because, verse 8, we love someone with a supreme love that we've never even seen. And this is where I want to draw your attention to today. Verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's rather interesting to note that relationships were a constant concern for the apostles. Maintaining right relationships. We find examples of this. Let me cite just some verses. Look them up with me, if you would, in chapter 2, and verse 18, where Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. You see how he's concerned with a relationship. You can draw a present-day application from that, I suppose, to employment-employee relationships. Be submissive to your boss. Show your boss respect, uh, even when he may not, uh, in your estimation, be worthy of it. Uh, give it to him anyway, as unto Christ. So we have that. We come into chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Jump down a little bit to verse 7, same chapter, chapter 3. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. 
In another place we read, this is in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 speaks of the relationship of Christians to their pastors. Paul and Peter both deal with the relationship between a Christian wife and an unsaved husband. Paul's epistle to Philemon is a plea for a right relationship to be established and maintained between Philemon and his runaway slave, Onesimus. So you get the drift of what I'm saying now. There is an emphasis on relationships throughout the New Testament. Many churches spend a great deal of time expounding these scriptures that have to do with these relationships. Indeed, we're going to watch a message on the subject of marriage this afternoon. Seminars and special meetings are often held that take up the subject of these relationships. And you're probably aware, as I am, that uh, an untold number of books have been written on this very subject. Yet in the midst of so many sermons and seminars and books, there seems to be one relationship that is somehow strangely overlooked. And it's the relationship between a Christian and his Savior. What about that relationship? There seems to be a dangerous presumption in many circles that dominates the mentality of some seminar speakers and preachers and authors. The presumption is that the Christian's relationship to his Lord needs no attention. He's been saved, they reason. His relationship to the Lord must be good then, good and right, and will always be so as long as he endeavors to follow the principles of God's Word? Now, I'm not a professional counselor, but I'd be willing to guess that a professional counselor would tell a person that presumption is a great danger in a marriage relationship or when it comes to the relationships between children and their parents. The danger of presumption. It seems that over time, we have a tendency to take so many things for granted as parents or children or spouses. Well, how much more so is it dangerous to assume that no attention ever needs to be given to the Christian's relationship to his Savior? One of the things you're going to see this afternoon if you stay and uh, begin to watch this series that we'll be watching by Paul Tripp. And and this is one of the reasons I'm so attracted to his focus. It, It is his emphasis on the fact that the problems in marriages are never horizontal, at least not to start. They're always vertical. There is a problem on the horizontal level because there's a problem on the vertical level. In other words, your problem with your spouse is due to the fact that you're not tending to your relationship to your Savior. You don't love your spouse because you don't love your Savior. 
That'll be the kind of challenge she'll put to you, and it's uh, very needed and, uh, and very true. In some cases, I fear that there may not really be any relationship at all between a spouse or a professor of faith with his Savior. In other cases, there may be a relationship, but it's grown cold. Like the saints at Ephesus in the book of Revelation who left their first love. When that happens, you can be pretty sure that other relationships will sour also. Then again, there are those who love the Savior, but they're not satisfied that their affection is strong enough. They long for their relationship to their Lord to grow. I like to think I can put myself in that category. I believe that this is a burden that every true child of God shares. We're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. Our love to Him deserves a place above all other affections, so much so that our natural affections for those who are near and dear to us may seem like hatred in comparison. Not only are we commanded to love the Lord, but we're compelled to love Him as well. The sign of Christ, or the sight rather, of Christ hanging on a cross, bleeding in agony and shame, bearing our sins, enduring our punishment, out of love for us, compels us, or should compel us, to love Him in return. But alas, we're convicted that this love that he commands and compels comes short of what it should be. What then are we to do? Well, the Lord's table is certainly a remedy for gaining a greater sense of his love to us and in turn manifesting our love to him. This is the place where we draw near to him nearer perhaps than through any other means of grace. And so this morning I want to think on two things from this text that we need to understand about this love relationship to our Savior that will hopefully deepen our awareness of His love for us and hence enable us to love Him with greater earnestness in return. Two thoughts here. First, consider with me the unusual nature of this love. Whom having not seen, we love, our text tells us in verse 8. And what an unusual situation this is, especially in the eyes of the world, that the supreme object of our deepest affection should be a person unseen by the eye of flesh. The world might understand and be more sympathetic to us if we had actually seen Christ even once and we're waiting to see him again. But we've never seen him with the eye of the flesh. Chances are many of the saints that Peter is addressing in this epistle had never seen him that way either. Although some undoubtedly had. The saints addressed in this epistle, you see, were undergoing heaviness 
and manifold temptations. Verse 6. And we know from the book of Acts and from James' epistle that Jewish believers suffered severe persecution. They were scattered from Jerusalem. They were pressured from the leverage of national loyalty to give up the way of salvation by faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Yet through all of these trials and afflictions, their affection remained intact and true to their unseen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The world was and is ready to wonder what a strange thing it is that Christians will expose themselves to such great sufferings and will forsake the things that are seen and renounce all that is dear and pleasant to the senses in order to embrace one who is now invisible to the eye. Like Nicodemus of old, the world might ask, how can these things be? And the answer is, of course, that we love him because he first loved us. Though we see him not, yet we are, or we should be, very much aware of the manifestations of his love. He manifests his love for us, you see, by the things he bestows on us. He bestows on us life. Verse 3 tells us that we have been begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is called here a lively hope or a living hope because it pertains to life and because it affects our lives. Paul, in writing to Titus, refers to himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ in hope of eternal life. Paul explains the basis of that hope in the next verse, Titus 1 and verse 2. It's based on the promise from our God who cannot lie. Peter strengthens our assurance of this hope by pointing out that it has come about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We love him, therefore, because he has given us life, and he has given it to us on account of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see the connection in that familiar text between love and life? He so loved the world. We gain everlasting life. In close connection with this life that God bestows by his love, we can say that he has manifested his love for us through the inheritance that he bestows on us to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter writes in verse 4 of chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read, 
according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Rather interesting to... um, Note the connection between verses 4 and 5, especially as it pertains to that little phrase, in love. Okay, he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And there are those that ask, does that phrase in love uh, more appropriately belong to the next uh, line so that it would read in love having predestinated us under the adoption of children. One commentator notes this. Let me quote him. The expression in love is probably to be taken in connection with the following verse and should be read in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. It is all to be traced to the love of God. It was love for us which prompted it It is the highest expression of love to be ordained to eternal life. For what higher love could God show us? It is love on his part because we had no claim to it and had not deserved it. If this be the correct view, then the doctrine of predestination is not inconsistent with the highest moral excellence in the divine character, and should never be represented as the offspring of partiality and injustice. Then, too, we should give thanks that God has in love predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. So his love for us is manifested by the life he gives us. It's manifested through the inheritance he bestows on us. But ultimately, it's the manifestation of Christ himself that leads us to love him, even though we've never seen him. Chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us he was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. We are aware that in giving us life and in giving us an inheritance, he had to redeem us. He had to pay a price in blood. Chapter 2 and verse 24 puts it this way, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Chapter 3, verse 18, puts it this way. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So we love one whom we have not seen, because we're very much aware that his love has been manifested to us and for us. We meet around this table this morning to partake of visible signs that remind us of the greatness of his love. And we're reminded of his words in John 15 and verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, 
that a man lay down his life for his friends? Our affection toward our Savior, then, is an unusual affection. Unusual because we love one whom we've never seen. But though we've never seen him, we are very much aware that his love for us surpasses what we can even comprehend. There's a length and breadth and depth and height to his love that passes knowledge. Ephesians chapter 3. And here is yet another reason why we search out salvation so we can explore all these dimensions of his love for us. It's breadth and length and depth and height. But we can take this thought even a step further. Our love for one we have not seen is not only an unusual affection, it's also a supernatural affection. We have been begotten unto a lively hope. We read in verse 3. And if you compare that to verse 23, chapter 1, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Oh, it's no wonder that the world would marvel at such a love. It's impossible to love one you can't see with a fleshly eye. It's child's play, as if you're fantasizing, the world would argue. And we would have to agree that it is impossible to the natural man but we have been begotten or miraculously born to this relationship of love. I'm afraid that not everyone appreciates the truth in our day, that the new birth is sovereignly and miraculously wrought upon the hearts of Christians. There are many in evangelical circles, I suppose following in the train of Billy Graham, who have the cart before the horse, and lead people to think that the new birth is the result of their decision for Christ. The very opposite is true. The decision to embrace and love the unseen Savior is the result of a new birth, a work of power that uproots and displaces a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that beats in love toward the one who bore our sins. We can draw tremendous encouragement, you know, from the nature of this love. Look into your own heart today. Can you not confess that you love him? Oh, you don't love him with a perfect love, but you love him nevertheless. You wish your affection would be greater, that the flickering flame of love would be fanned into a blaze but you can at least detect that flickering flame of affection. And you wouldn't trade your knowledge of Christ for all that the world could offer. Who would acknowledge today that they don't love him? Who would say that they regret the day they ever learned of him? 
Well, I want to tell you this morning that even the slightest trace of affection you feel toward him bears witness to a work of grace that has been powerfully wrought upon your soul. It also bears witness to the truth that you are indeed a child of God and that Christ loves you. He loves you with an unfailing and never-ending affection. And the Lord's table serves the purpose this morning of reminding us of that affection. So that's the first point, okay? Second point is this. How can we increase then our affection toward Christ? My second point raises a question. How can we increase our affection for Christ I'm happy to say that I love him. I'm not satisfied that I love him nearly enough. How can I love him more? We're encouraged, as I say, to trace the flickering flame of devotion to him. But how can we make that affection grow? Well, our text gives us the answer. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, and underscore the next two words, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Okay, let me read that again. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. This part of the text indicates that there's a connection then between our love and our faith. Faith is believing. This time around the Lord's table is an act of faith, but it also serves to increase our faith. Rather interesting to note through various verses in the New Testament the connection between faith and love. It's brought out in a number of instances. Let me highlight three. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. Faith and love. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, Now abideth faith, hope, charity, and call to mind that in our authorized version, charity means loving kindness. Now abideth faith, hope, loving kindness, these three, but the greatest of these is charity, loving kindness. And here again, faith, hope, loving kindness. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, and this one perhaps is the clearest statement. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Faith which worketh by love. You see the connection there? Faith and love. Faith which worketh by love. Now let's note this very carefully. 1 Corinthians 13 attributes the highest rank to love. Galatians 5 verse 6 tells us faith operates by love. The thing we must understand, however, is that faith precedes, at least initially, love. And the object of our faith becomes the basis for our love. You with me still? 
Let me try to illustrate it this way. When Christ was presented to you through the gospel, you learned of your sins and you learned of his love by dying for your sins. You felt no affection for him until you were made aware and believed in his affection for you. John brings out this truth very clearly in his first epistle, chapter 4, when he says, we love him because he first loved us. We loved him when we became aware of his love for us. And so our faith in his love for us is what lights the fire of our love for him. This faith, then, now ignited by Christ's love, manifests itself by our affection for Christ. Or in other words, it works by love. So our love is built on faith, and then faith worketh by love. And by knowing this, we have the key for increasing our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. You want to increase your love? then you have to increase your faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This takes you back to time in the word, back to time in prayer. This brings you again to the Lord's table this morning. You hear the still, small voice of his spirit assuring you that God loves you. You behold Christ coming into this world for you, living for you, dying for you. As you reverently behold Christ in the scriptures or in the visible signs he's ordained, you are able with the help of a spirit to see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. And the response of your heart is as the hymn writers that ere such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown. The sum of the whole matter is simply this. To increase your love to Christ, labor to lay hold of his love for you. Believing, though now you see him not. And the outcome will be rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The outcome will be a love for Christ that is demonstrated through love for Christ's people, love for Christ's church, love for Christ's precepts, love for the Lord's day, and a love for the worship of Christ. When you were saved, you entered into a marriage with Christ. He's the bridegroom, we are his bride. And a bond of love was formed between you and Christ. You entered into a covenant relationship with him. Let's be mindful this morning of that relationship. It's a relationship that, like any relationship, needs attention in order for it to function. It's a relationship, moreover, that needs to be maintained in order for all our earthly relationships to function properly. You want to be a better husband? You need to love Christ more. You want to be a more submissive wife? You need to love Christ more. 
That's how it works. Tend to the vertical. The horizontal ones become uh, much less challenging in that regard. Oh, may Christ stamp upon our hearts then the reality of his love, and may we in turn be encouraged and strengthened to love him more. Let's close then in prayer before we partake of the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee for the love of Jesus Christ, for a love that is unlike any other love under the sun, a love that we're not worthy of, but a love that we nevertheless are convinced of because we see how our Savior demonstrated that love. He didn't simply pledge it. He didn't simply say it. He demonstrated it by going all the way to Calvary's cross, giving his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. Oh Lord, we pray that our lives will be impacted by this display of your love. And we thank thee for the opportunity we have even around this table now to pledge our love back to thee for thy great love for us. So draw near to us now, Lord, and bless us in the partaking of these elements. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.